Too many still look outwards, some believing in the illusion of victory and of victorious power, others in treaties and laws, and others again in the overthrow of the existing order. But still too few look inward to their own selves, and still fewer ask themselves whether the ends of human society might not best be served if each man and woman tried to abolish the old order in themselves and to practice in themselves and in their own inward state those precepts, those victories, which are preached at every street corner. Joining me today, I have Dr. Kenneth James. He maintains a private practice in Chicago, Illinois at the Soul Work Center. His areas of expertise include dream work and psychoanalysis, archetypal dimensions of analytic practice, divination and synchronicity, and ways to sustain the vital relationship between body, mind, and spirit. He has done postdoctoral work in music therapy, the Kabbalah, spirituality and theology, and he uses these disciplines to inform his work as a Jungian analyst. Dr. James, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for asking me to join you. Yeah, I'm very excited about uh, this interview. I've, I've read some Jung, and I am currently in a graduate program, and I'm considering either a psychoanalytic institute or like a Jungian institute post-graduation. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for this. Um, can you start off just by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in psychology? Sure. It's, <laughs> a, it's a long, bumpy trip. Um, oh. I originally started out in mathematics. Oh. And what I, my undergraduate degree was in mathematics. And I oh. tell people that if mathematics had done what I wanted it to do, I oh. never would have looked into psychology and especially not Jung. Oh. But life has a way of taking you where you need to go. So. Yeah. Um, well, what is it, sorry, what is it that you wanted it to do? Well, I, you know, I like the fact that mathematics gets to the fundamental structures uh -huh. of what we want to call reality. Mm. And I was always primarily interested in pure mathematics, not mm. uh, technology or those sorts of things. Although, of course, we learned all about Com, you know, computers, information science, and so forth. Uh -huh. um, and I, I think that that drive to get at the underlying structures mm. also is one of the reasons why I was drawn to Jung. Uh -huh. Because, of course, the theory of the collective unconscious is just that. What are the underlying unconscious structures mm. that organize our experience, really? Yeah. So. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah, it does go well together. And so... So it didn't go like you wanted it to an undergrad. And then uh, where did you go from there? Well, I went to graduate school and uh, continued on my studies. At that point, I had become interested in um, doing some sort of therapeutic work. Okay. So my uh, master's degree and my doctorate are in communicative sciences okay. and working specifically with central nervous system dysfunction, huh. language disorders, learning disabilities, that sort yeah. of thing. And at the school where I went, which was Northwestern, um, my department was part of a, a larger school that at the time was called the School of Speech. Oh. And that included um, all of the speech arts, like oral interpretation, performance studies. And there was a professor in the performance studies department 
who also was a Jungian analyst. And I didn't work with him directly in school, but I did know about him. And he became my first analyst after I had graduated and had been working for a while. So So you decided to get analyzed yourself Mm -hmm. and then he was your first analyst and through that experience you kind of decided well why not why not do this thing for myself uh, sort of it, I, <laughs> again it wasn't that linear i uh-huh. wish it were uh-huh. um i had after i finished graduate school which i went through very quickly mm. um i now see that i was probably more of a neurotic mess <laughs> than i was willing to admit at the time so uh-huh. i began therapy with a psychologist who was not a Jungian. And uh, to this day, I really am grateful to him for his integrity and his professionalism. Mm. After we were working for about six months, he said, you know, we could continue working, but it feels like you're looking for something deeper Mm. than I'm able to to give. Uh And so he, you know, just kind of acknowledged that and I, moved in the Jungian direction. Oh, cool. And I was always interested in spirituality. I was raised um, as a Roman Catholic. Okay. Um, and even though I went into recovery for that early on, um, that spirit, you know, when it's planted, that, that spirituality is very strong. Uh-huh. And I found most schools of psychology uh, either neutral or mm. downright hostile. to a spiritual um, kind of perspective. But obviously, Jungian psychology is not. Uh So I think that was something that drew me to it. I first read Jung when I was 16. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Didn't know what I was doing. But back in those days, you know, they had all kinds of actual bookstores you could go into and Uh look at the books. And Uh uh, there was a a portable Jung volume Mm. that was edited by Joseph Campbell. And that was the first... Oh. book that I read. I don't pretend to have understood much of it at all, yeah. but it sparked an interest and mm. through the years. I, I maintained that and went further with it. And um, can you tell us about the, uh, the C.G. Young Institute in Chicago there and your, your time going through the training? Yes. Yeah. So uh, the C.G. Young Institute in Chicago Mm. which actually was in Evanston, which is perfect for a Jungian Institute to <laughs> Can you explain not be why? quite where you say it is. Um, they had a, a very extensive public program okay. and the, they offered courses uh, to anyone who oh. wanted to take them. And I took courses in that program for a few years mm. and gradually decided that I wanted to go into an analysis, into analysis. I didn't at the time have any thought of becoming an analyst myself. Okay. That wasn't, that wasn't a motivating factor. Um, but I knew that I needed to know myself better Hmm. and I felt that this would be a way to do it. Uh So, uh, I began my first analysis. Actually, I went to interview my first analyst and, Uh talked with him. And at the end of that interview, I said, well, I'm not quite sure if I'm ready to begin. And he said, that's all right. You know, you'll know when you're ready and you know where I am. So it was about six months later, I had a dream. 
And I woke up and the content of the dream isn't really important, but what was important was I knew now I had to begin. Mm. So I did. And that first analysis went on for about nine years. And then it came to a close. And I remember saying to my analyst, you know, this has become so much a part of my life. Uh Um, I'd love to find a way to continue it. And he said, well, have you ever considered training as an analyst yourself? And I said, no. He said, well, why don't you think about it? So I looked at the requirements and I looked at uh, the program and applied and got in and went through. My <clears throat> excuse me, period of training took about four and a half years, five years, which okay. is pretty much the minimum. But I tend to be fairly OCD when <laughs> I start a project. So, um, so I went through that and it was probably one of the most difficult experiences I ever had. I joke that um, getting into the analyst training program made getting into Northwestern seem like kindergarten uh, because it was very rigorous. And it has to be because Mm. um, the amount of autonomy that an analyst has requires that there's uh, a lot of scrutiny and continues to be a lot of scrutiny throughout your professional career. And so that's, that's what I did. Yeah. And what, in what ways was it, um, I guess maybe so rigorous or difficult? The core of becoming an analyst, the core of the training is your personal analysis. By the way, when you, when I started again, I had to go through a whole other analysis, which is the way it goes. So I did that one, um, during my training and after my training. Uh, with a different analyst. We were, at that time, it was recommended that we work both with a man and a woman. Oh, And I had, my first analysis was with a man, so my second analysis was with a woman. Uh-huh. Um, and everything is laid bare mm. in, in a very uh, contained and I would say largely supportive environment. Uh-huh. But you are confronted with the reality of the psyche in a way that I think we are protected from mm. in other um, domains or other areas of our existence. Uh-huh. And so I, I'll never forget in my, this was in my first analysis so before I was in training, but by this point I had been teaching for maybe eight years, nine years. And I had taught, you know, courses, including all of the major concepts of psychology, like projection display all the defense mechanisms and i remember again i don't remember the details of what was being discussed but i remember in the course of working with my analyst Mm -hmm. i got that i had been projecting in a particular area of my life Mm -hmm. and it was the strangest experience because i can remember i was reclining And it felt like someone had put a hot, wet towel over my body and Uh. covered it. It was, it was a physical sensation. It was different than understanding intellectually what projection was. It was a common, I can't even name the emotions, but it was a combination of confusion, shame, regret, wonder was there too. Mm. 
of how something like this, which to my theoretical mind, to my conceptual mind, uh-huh. was something I knew and could understand, but I never really got till that moment what it was like to be possessed mm. by that particular psychic dynamic. Mm. Um, and it was like that with a lot of other things all the way through. You know, and the fact that the analyst looks not so much at what you're saying, but I mean, that's important, obviously, but how you're saying it and where are the slips of the tongue? Where are the things that you don't quite remember and then you remember later? All of those sort of lapses become the meat of the analytic work. And they're, mm-hmm. of course, the places where the ego doesn't want to look. Uh huh. You know, uh huh. Yeah. And, Okay, so so this would be a good opportunity. Can you um, explain? I know maybe it's not linear, but um, some general concepts of Jungian analysis and how it differs from, let's say, uh, traditional psychoanalysis or Freudian analysis or something like that. Anymore, I don't know that there's that big of a difference because um, the the psychoanalytic community uh-huh. uh, has become much more open uh-huh. to a lot of the concepts that early on led to the division mm. <clears throat> between Jung and Freud. Yeah. And uh, likewise, in analytical psychology, excuse me, <clears throat> we are much more aware of the dynamics of transference and their equal importance to typology and to the archetypal domain. Mm-hmm. But I would say that one of the most important aspects of Jungian work is uh, the synthetic approach or the teleological approach to psyche. Mm. Um, Pretty much when there's a a neurotic symptom, Uh it's usually worked with in terms of history. Like what in the individual history of the individual might have given rise to this condition or circumstance or attitude. Uh And while that is extremely important, Mm -hmm. from the Jungian perspective, we also are focusing on where is this taking me? Mm. So what is the future? Jung used the Greek word telos or teleology to Mm. refer to this aspect. So you have, let's just take the situation. We go back in time to causation, Uh all of those factors in my personal history that Uh might have led to this. But then this particular suffering, what is it leading me to? Mm. Where am I being drawn? And that's the telos, or some people refer to that as the synthetic approach. Looking backward, breaking it apart is the analytic. Uh But how is this pulling my energies forward? Mm. This, I think, is distinctly unique because it, it is the foundation of the Jungian attitude of depathologizing. So it isn't that Jungians don't understand the DSM or or can't call out frank psychopathology, uh-huh. but you don't get any healing out of that. You just get diagnosis and mm. categorization. Uh-huh. And both diagnosis and categorization from a Jungian perspective are archetypally driven. Okay. This idea to you know, put somebody in a category uh-huh. and then derive treatment based on that category, which is kind of a power uh, complex, mm. um, is archetypally driven. Mm. Jung said you have to do that because people need to be kept safe. Uh-huh. 
But to just look at pathology loses this pull. What is the suffering pulling me to? Mm. And I think psychological suffering uh, in particular benefits from that teleological perspective. Because regardless of what happened in my past, I have to live in the present and move into the future. Mm -hmm. And how do I do that with my wounds? How do I do that with my talents? How do I do that with my frustrations? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very important part of psychological treatment, I believe. So can you give us kind of maybe uh, an example of maybe like a, an easy to understand example of that? Sure. <laughs> I'm trying to think and then quickly yeah. translating case material so yeah. nothing can be identified. Um, so it's probably seen most clearly in relational situations okay. where people will very often be in a relationship and then come to the the discernment that the relationship needs to end. Okay. So they leave that relationship with as much integrity as they can bring. And then they move into another relationship and lo and behold, uh -huh. it's the same relationship. Uh -huh. It's a different person. It's, you know, yeah. and looking at the underlying patterns and pointing them out can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. I remember working with uh, a woman who was in her second marriage and was having the same sort of difficulty with a very deeply wounded man. Mm. Um, and at one point, which was very similar to her first husband. And at one point I said, when did you decide that your role in life was to serve the madman? Mm. And she looked at me and I said, I mean, if you want to do that, you can, but can you see that that's what you've been doing? Mm. And although that may have may sound harsh as I just put it out, it grew out of our work together. Yeah. And she was able to look at it and see that a lot of that was connected with uh, trying to appease the, the unapproachable father. Mm. And, you know, she didn't understand that as a girl and uh -huh. unconsciously, you can look at this as a repetition compulsion, which in a certain sense, I guess it was, if we look at it from a Freudian perspective, but also if we look at it as, okay, you're doing something with this mm -hmm. that is trying to heal something and bring you to a new, more whole future, what might that be? Mm. So that's the synthetic part of it. Yeah, that would be the yeah. synthetic part. Where is this leading you? Uh-huh. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Um, is there still, so, you know, some some primary Jungian ideas are like the shadow, the anima or animus, um, and then, you know, like the wise old man or the, or the, so are those still kind of primary um, ideas or precepts that you work with? And Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Go, go ahead. Yeah. There was a second part of your question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe can you explain like the shadow? Oh, so maybe explain those and then how might those, have have those changed since you know Jung's time, or are they still largely kind of the same? <laughs> no, they've changed. The way I like to put it is the dynamic remains the same, but uh -huh. the costuming changes. 
okay. with with the the shifts in our culture. Yeah. So as you probably know, in Jung's writings about shadow and anima animus, okay. um, and I'll define those terms. So the shadow refers to all of those qualities or characteristics that I would be able to exhibit, but I I have chosen, and again, the choosing is unconscious, not to do so. Uh-huh. And the shadow forms, if, if we have the ego here, uh-huh. then interfacing between the ego and the outer world is something called the persona. Okay. And that uh, is a selection and intensification of certain qualities that are deemed by the individual to be desirable. Okay. So let's say my persona might be um, compassionate or mm. um, brave mm. might be or um, understanding or with, you know, characteristics yeah. like that. Yeah. Their opposites would then fall into the shadow. Okay. And the shadow is sort of so repulsive that it causes us to want to flee and that flight from the shadow usually results in projection and then attack all right Uh now in the traditional literature the shadow uh so i'm male i identify as a male Uh so my shadow would generally appear in in dreams Mm. or even perhaps in the so-called outer world Mm. as a masculine figure this would be pure Jung. we don't think this way anymore because You know, there's been so many um, different ways now that we understand gender uh-huh. and place in the world and so forth. Uh-huh. But the classical theory would say that. Similarly, because I'm embodied as a male uh-huh. and I identify with that gender, the absolute other that Jung would call the anima mm. is in my psyche uh, embodied as a feminine, mm. as a female. In the psyche of a woman who identifies with that gender, Uh uh, this same component is called the animus, and it's usually embodied as a male figure. If you read what Jung says about the animus and the anima, and what the anima possessed man and the animus possessed woman is, very quickly we come to some distasteful rhetoric Uh coming from Jung. Yeah. <clears throat> we have to remember that he died in 1961 yeah. and our notions of, and he was European uh-huh. and our notions of gender were very different mm. than, well, than they even were when I was in training and certainly very different yeah. than the way the world is now. Yeah. But the fundamental principles of shadow and anima uh-huh. are the same. The shadow is unconscious material that repels me. Mm. And I'm going to want to escape it through projection, generally projection and attack. Uh-huh. So there's, I'm the good guy. Uh-huh. They are the bad guys. We see this all over the place. We certainly yeah. see it now in our society. Yeah. Uh, similarly, the anima, which represents experience that I cannot know, not just experience I don't know, but I can't know, mm. that exerts an attractive force. So we have the shadow, which is repulsive, the uh-huh. anima, which is attractive, but they're both at first going to be experienced through projection. Okay. And this is the root of what Jung, uh, Freud would refer to as uh, love and war or uh-huh. love and death, uh-huh. because I want to fight the shadow as it appears in my life mm. to the death, 
because mm. I cannot stand that. Mm. And I'm going to want to connect with whatever object, object here being a psychological object, so it can be a person. I want to connect with whatever object I can project my anima energy onto. Mm. That's going to pull me toward it. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with projection. The uh -huh. difficulty is believing projection. Uh -huh. um, so in relationship, the worst thing anyone could say to another person is, you're not the person I married. <laughs> because, of course, they never were. Uh -huh. um, if it weren't for mutual projection, we'd probably all sit on rocks and pick our noses. So, mm. um, so the dynamics remain the same, yeah. but the genderizing has become much more softened. Okay, okay. Um, and so would, uh, would you say that even me and you here, that... Um, what I see of you or what you see of me is largely just kind of a symbol or it's not the real thing? Is it how diluted is it or uh, contaminated is it, let's say? Ooh, I like <laughs> diluted better than contaminated. Okay. Um, so I would say whenever you meet someone or when, actually whenever you're interacting with someone, uh -huh. if you do it with a commitment to trying to remain conscious, both of yourself and the other, uh -huh. Uh, what we experience is a very rapid succession of projections and withdrawal of projection. Hmm. Because as, as we reveal ourselves to one another through our speech, through our actions and so forth, hmm. who you thought you were talking to and who is revealed as being who you are talking to hmm. gets into a certain amount of conflict uh -huh. and then you release who you thought, replace it with who is there. But because human beings are constantly unfolding, uh -huh. that process of projection and release is um, probably going to be constitutive to mm. interpersonal relationships for as long as they are. Because essentially, you will always be object to me. Uh -huh. Because I can't know your subjectivity just as you can't know mine. Yeah. But because to a certain extent, I, I sense a certain connection or a certain commonality. Uh -huh. We're both human. We're both here on the planet, although we're vastly different in age, different in experience, mm -hmm. and probably tons of other things. Mm -hmm. uh, we can sort of take an educated guess, which is what, in the best sense, a projection is. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Um, and then uh, after, so you explained the shadow, the persona, the anima and animus, and then you talked a little bit about how you can be like possessed by the anima or animus. Um, and then there was something I'm not too clear on, but I read about the mana personality. Oh, yes. Can you get maybe, I know that might be more complicated, I'm not sure, but can you get a little, can you explain that a little bit? Oh, yeah. In fact, that um, when you sent your email to me, uh -huh. you had asked, one of the questions you asked was, um, if there were one Jungian book that I yeah. would recommend, what yeah. would it be? And it would be volume seven of Jung's collected works, two essays on analytical psychology, okay. in which he has a whole chapter on the mana personality. Okay. Uh, the word mana comes from a, I believe, Polynesian language, and it, uh -huh. it refers to being indwelt by a god or a supernatural power. Hmm. <clears throat> the mana personality is probably best understood as 
something that happens when an individual is completely subsumed into or by mm. archetypal forces. And so the person loses a sense of their individuality mm. and, and becomes filled in with or inflated with archetypal energy. Uh -huh. And the monopersonality is very interesting. And again, we could just look around at current events to see this, because when an individual embodies the mana, mm. it not only possesses that individual, it possesses the group in which that individual operates. Uh. Because the one who has the mana uh. forces others into service of the mana. Mm. And so that this is an example of how the archetypes <clears throat> are not simply in my psyche. Yeah. They are, uh, they constellate an entire field uh -huh. of experience. Uh -huh. um, and the only cure for a monopersonality situation is for gradually everyone involved to become aware of what has happened. Wow. And That's how powerful. that happens is a big mystery. Uh, <laughs> okay, because um, we can only do so much. But when you're caught in it, just like when we're caught in a complex, uh -huh. I don't know I'm caught. Uh -huh. Even the person who's uh, apparently embodying the mana isn't aware that that's what's happening. Yeah, There's an identification with that. Yeah, We see this in any power dynamic, but it becomes particularly um, harmful, I think. Mm in a political context, religious contexts. Mm -hmm. That's another place where we see this. Uh -huh. um, it can happen in families where one individual takes the mana mm. and everybody else has to somehow define their relationships, the relationships uh -huh. based on that central mana figure. Mm. You, you mentioned, um, so you mentioned kind of, I was also going to ask you about psychic inflation. And you mentioned that um, throughout the, through the process of uh, adopting the mana personality, you become inflated. And um, from my understanding, through the process of individuation, you and once you start to kind of combine the conscious with the unconscious, um, psychic inflation can happen. Can you explain what that is? And um, maybe, I don't know about the dangers of individuation, but maybe some of the uh, things to be aware of or to look out for. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, so first of all, the process of individuation, which is what Jung called uh, the desired outcome. The okay. desired outcome of analytic work is to fully engage the process of individuation. Uh -huh. We are never individuated. But what the word individuation means is to become undivided. Mm. We think that we are individuals, right? Because uh -huh. I tend to, you know, wake up where I fall asleep and kind of I know where I am now and I feel like a whole person. Uh -huh. But Jung said actually we are individuals. We're divided. Mm. Um, because my sense of who I am varies from moment to moment. I'm not mm. always in my ego mm. uh, by any means. 
And the process of individuation is a gradual coming to the ability to monitor and chart what's going on in my inner world, hmm. which is going to be reflected in what's going on in my outer world. Hmm. So I can begin to be a little bit more humble about what I believe to be going on hmm. because I'm, I'm aware that there's a lot of different, um, let's say perspectives or frames of reference right in here uh -huh. that are going to govern what I'm experiencing in the so-called outer world. When we begin to feel what it's like to have some of these parts pulled together, that can lead for a while to a sense of inflation, a sense that, okay, I've got it. I know exactly what's going on. It's usually what happens after people read one or two books about Jung. <laughs> they think they've got it. You know? uh -huh. And that's important, uh -huh. but we have to recognize that there'll come another stage where you start to realize, uh, no, you don't, <laughs> and you can't. Mm. And because of that, there's a certain humility and um, compassion first for yourself and then quite naturally for the other yeah because we really are all trying to figure this out before it's over yeah yeah i um that explanation makes a lot of sense and i even when i first read uh, a couple of books by Jung, and he talks in there about um he, he mentioned in there about how a lot of us are largely unconscious and we're just going around and we're pointing it out that it's not me, it's them. And if only people would realize that, no, it's it's me, then a lot of this would subside. And you read that and you're like, oh, OK, yeah, that makes sense. And then and then it's it gives it's so easy to use that and, and then almost almost point at other people and say, if you only knew. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> you're forcing me to get my handy dandy copy oh good two essays um two essays is really interesting because jung revised these essays throughout his life huh. and so uh and all of the versions kind of are in here but i want to read something that he wrote in the preface to the second edition it's exactly related to what you just said he wrote this in 1918 so okay. it would have been after the war um and he talked about people becoming interested in the psyche. And he says, this interest may be due in no small measure to the profound shock which our consciousness sustained through the world war. The spectacle of this catastrophe threw man back upon himself by making him feel his complete impotence. It turned his gaze inwards and with everything rocking about him, he must needs seek something that guarantees him a hold. Too many still look outwards, some believing in the illusion of victory and of victorious power, others in treaties and laws, and others again in the overthrow of the existing order. But still too few look inward to their own selves, and still fewer ask themselves whether the ends of human society might not best be served if each man and woman tried to abolish the old order in themselves and to practice in themselves and in their own inward state those precepts those victories which are preached at every street corner instead of always expecting these of his fellow men 
Every individual needs revolution, inner division, overthrow of the existing order and renewal, but not by forcing them upon his neighbors under the hypocritical cloak of Christian love or the sense of social responsibility or any of the other beautiful euphemisms for unconscious urges to personal power. Mm. And then he goes on to say individual self-reflection, return of the individual to the ground of uh, human nature, to his own deepest being with its individual and social destiny. Here's the beginning of a cure for the blindness that reigns at this present hour. Wow. And I think that's just as pertinent today as it was in 1918. Yeah. Um, because that's the hard work. That's the work of individuation. Uh-huh. How do I upend my worldview? Well, generally, most of us can't. It has to be upended for us mm. through some sort of crisis or experience uh-huh. that makes us realize everything that we thought was the way the world worked probably isn't all that accurate. Mm. No. That was... Uh... That was one of the questions is I've, I've vaguely heard about individuation is kind of, is that what he, is that what he called the transcendent function? Uh, no, the t- <clears throat> individuation is the word for the whole process. Okay. That, and, and by the way, you don't have to be an analysis to be uh-huh. uh, on the individuation path. It's okay. basically being born okay. is your ticket. Got it that you know what you can do is is try to make it a little bit less painful (laughs) but Uh it's going to happen anyway Uh um and now i totally forgot your question Uh, oh transcendent transcendent function so how can we do this given that the ego is limited Hmm. okay the ego knows what it knows but it doesn't know everything Uh the unconscious is much more vast and the unconscious is always trying to tap into the the conscious mind yeah through even, you know, things like dreams or daydreams or projection or displacement, all of the the fun things, somatization, parapraxis, synchronicity, these are all ways that the unconscious tries to communicate with us. Uh So you have the conscious mind here and the unconscious here, and how are they going to meet? Hmm. The unconscious produces the symbol through the activity of the transcendent function. So the transcendent, what is being transcended is the division between the conscious mind and the unconscious. Okay. And that transcendence is facilitated through the generation of the symbol, which is the link uh, between those two. The transcendent function is the link between the unconscious and the conscious that generates Correct. the symbol? Okay. Right, wow. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so dreams, um, how I, I read it, I, when I was introducing you, I believe I talked about how you do dream work and, um, and I, I know Freud wrote a lot about, he wrote the, you know, the interpretation of dreams, Jung wrote a lot about dreams. Um, can you tell us how, how prevalent or the utility of dream work today in analysis? Oh, well, the prevalence probably would depend on individual practitioners. Okay. Uh, but in terms of the value of working with the dream Hmm. or a daydream, Uh for example, uh, I would say that that above all is the most valuable resource that we can have because Hmm. the dream is that which occurs to us when the ego is not present. Hmm. And, you know, when we go to sleep, there is no ego there. Uh 
And the unconscious produces material that comes to us in dreams. Hmm. And that material has value in terms of helping us understand both our life in the world and also our relationship to the inner world or hmm. the inner life. So the dream is, I would say, always the best resource to use. Okay. Um, dreams come and go, though. Uh-huh. And so what I advocate in the people that I work with is that they take an attitude to their waking life that's very much like the attitude they take toward their dreaming life. Mm -hmm. If I have a dream, I can narrate the dream. But, uh, you know, if I dreamt about finding a book, uh -huh. I'm not going to look around my house for that book because I'm going to be very sure that that was in the dream and I have to look at it symbolically. Mm. Uh, many of the experiences that we have in waking life need to be treated in that same way. I don't know if you know who the director Federico Fellini is. Oh. Um, probably not. <laughs> too young. But anyway, um, Fellini did a, a lot of what we might call avant-garde or art films um, during the 60s, 70s, maybe even into the 80s. And uh, his, his, film, his films were often... Um, were often filled with scenes that didn't make any sense. And you uh -huh. look at it and you go, what just happened here? And if you reflect on your daily life, we can often experience things where you, you have an experience in the outer world. And then when it's over, you think, what did that just happen? Uh -huh. And I call those Fellini moments. Okay. And I think that we can benefit from looking at our, our life experiences sometimes mm -hmm. as though they were dreams. Okay. So, uh, and this is especially a time of year when people are going to be living a lot of dreams and nightmares mm. as they get together with family over the holidays. Uh -huh. um, and so people will come in after the holidays with stories about what they experienced. Mm. And we could either go into, yeah, that was terrible that your family treated you that way or whatever. Uh -huh. But uh, to me, that has limited value. Instead, let's look at this from a symbolic perspective. Hmm. What was going on? Who did you represent in your family system? Hmm. And whatever experiences you had, what might they represent in you that you have to learn to confront and hmm. integrate? So that's, you know, working with dreams allows us to, to touch our life a little bit more gently. Hmm. Yeah, the the looking at like the role that you played and what what role might someone else have played, and what does that say about you yourself? Um, one of my, I had never, I actually just got done reading the first two parts of that book, the volume seven there that you showed oh, me. Yeah, yeah. And I had never heard of of synthetic dream interpretation before, and. Um, can you explain a little bit about that and how it differs from maybe the uh, Freudian style dream interpretation? So um, <clears throat> it, it differs only in that it would be the next step. Okay. So that from a Freudian perspective, and this uh, is still uh, very important, you want to get under the dream imagery. Mm. Freud said that dreams uh, came about to preserve sleep. 
because when the ego for Freud, the ego is not a complex, but a structural part of the psyche. When the ego is at, you know, its lowest level of energy, when we're uh -huh. asleep, material from uh, the deeper parts of the unconscious, those kind of unsocialized, wild, id impulses mm. can can take over and they can bring to the mind of the dreamer disturbing unthinkable thoughts mm. primarily from a, a classical freudian perspective thoughts of um, the incestuous thoughts edible thoughts uh, uh. so to keep to, and that would obviously disturb sleep because yeah. the ego would wake up but sleep is necessary so dreams come about as a means of preserving sleep by disguising these primal energies mm. in various dream figures or dream activities. Uh -huh. So that Freud and the analytic perspective that Freud brought to the dream was very suspicious of what we call the manifest content of the dream, which is the actual storyline of the dream. Okay. And so from a, an analytic perspective or what we would call a reductive perspective as opposed uh -huh. to synthetic the okay. reductive perspective would be let's get under the manifest content to see what are the underlying dynamics mm -hmm. that are being disguised and we're going to try to make them conscious mm -hmm. that would be one part of working with a dream from a jungian perspective jung never said that that wasn't valuable uh -huh. but jung said we also have to look at the dream in its teleological or pro when I say projective, it's projective into the future uh -huh. or synthetic. How is the dream bringing us to pull together our psychic energy to move toward a new state mm. or a new situation based on everything we've suffered in our past? And by suffered, I mean classically in the biblical sense of experience mm. or permitted. And what are we being pulled toward? That would be the essence of the synthetic okay. process. And that's where you get into all of the amplification with mythological imagery, imagery from art or, you know, other collective external resources. Uh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Um, yeah, you, uh, you, can you tell us about your interest in like theology and the Kabbalah and uh, how that Kind of informs your practice and and uh how that aids in your work sure yeah. so the whole notion of theology is a curious one mm. because you know what does it mean to posit the existence of the divine uh -huh. how is that how does that even occur and we know of no human community that doesn't have some religious mm. aspect to it yeah. So what are we really trying to do there? Um, so studying religion, not only my own, the one that I was raised in, but also as many other religious traditions as possible, I think uh, is valuable to me as a person, personally, but also incredibly valuable in my work. Hmm. Because all of the, the, what we might call texts or scriptures from religious traditions are in themselves myth in the best sense of that word. Unfortunately, in common usage, the word myth is often used as a synonym for lie. Mm. You know, the five myths of why you shouldn't oh, yeah. drink so much water or something, uh -huh. which is 
makes me crazy. Um, <laughs> not the water part, but the you said the word myth. Because that's false belief. Hmm. But a myth, if from, from the way a Jungian would look at a myth, a myth is an expression of a truth that cannot be expressed in any other way but hmm. through these symbols, these narratives, these traditions. Because a myth is not only a tale, it's also the way cultures engage the world, right? Um, so studying religion allows me to see how throughout time the human community has been trying to come to a deeper understanding of what this is all about, mm. this writ large. <clears throat> it's pretty clear that the unconscious is well organized. And the question always comes up, where did that organization come from? Uh -huh. If the unconscious is only populated, as Freud thought, with unprocessed material that came at me during this little lifetime, uh -huh. okay? Uh -huh. And if that were the case, then the unconscious ought not to be well-organized because mm. my experience in time is not well-organized, Yeah. okay? Uh. It, it's, there's, there's basically no hierarchy in my daily experience except what I impose on it, like, oh, it's, you know, almost time to be on the Zoom call with Daniel, or, yeah. oh, I have to make sure that I make that phone call later to stop uh, a payment on something or whatever. Um, so that even though when life hits us, it's in a very disorganized manner, mm -hmm. the unconscious seems to be very well organized. So that yeah. would seem to imply an underlying organizational structure, which Jung called the collective unconscious, hmm. that is without content, but which actually organizes any content that comes at it. Hmm. Content from my daily life, content from my tribe or group, content from uh, my culture. And again, religious traditions, some of the more well-organized religious traditions, especially the mystical aspects of religion, hmm speak to this most directly. The Kabbalah, for example, is a particular mapping of the collective unconscious onto what the Kabbalists call the tree of life and the sephirot. Oh. And that's one, one way of looking at it. Uh -huh. Any mythology will do the same thing. Okay. Uh, so, you know, you see this different, different uh, mystical traditions will do this in different ways. Christian mystics will talk about the centrality of Christ or certain aspects of Christ's suffering. Um, Sufi mystics, which is from primarily from the Islamic tradition, uh, would talk about the heart and the role of the beloved in calling us. Um, Kabbalah has a, a very, um, I would say complete, they're all complete, but a very complete emanational system mm. that derives from the particularities of the divine as understood in traditional Judaism, which is very um, multifaceted, shall we say, mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, and so quite naturally, I think from the, from the Jewish tradition, the Kabbalah comes uh, as a way to try to understand the dark and the light of the divine. Mm. But we see the same thing in uh, Taoism, for example, uh, in, in going from the absolute, I think it's called the Wuji, 
into the separation into the dark and light and separation, you know, the yin and the yang, and then each of those separate and then eventually all come back together. Hmm. So uh, mythical or religious traditions, both East and West, provide us with these kinds of maps. And I, I found that uh, intriguing. Yeah. So, ba- yeah. so basically, just to repeat, um, the unconscious is this organized uh, organized entity, let's say, that is, is always there from the time that we come into this thing called life. And then the, the way that it is expressed um one of the ways it's expressed is through is through myths that are true stories that are otherwise impossible to that are truths that are otherwise impossible to explain and so these these different myths and different religions all contain it's like a mapping of the unconscious it's it's our best okay right very interesting and so the structuring and that doesn't mean that religions can be all collapsed into one uh-huh. because uh-huh. there are distinctive differences. Uh-huh. But I think the differences among religions actually can prove the truth of the underlying structure because mm. each, each religion will emphasize certain aspects of the collective unconscious and downplay certain other aspects. Mm. And the more you can understand about religion in general, the better you'll be able to, um, I don't think anyone can ever truly understand the collective unconscious, uh-huh. but at least appreciate its impact uh-huh. in our lives and and minimize the tendency to reduce everything. Here we get back to my mathematical <laughs> training, you know, <laughs> to reduce that desire to get everything down to one thing, mm. you know, because yeah. that can be uh, very limiting and ultimately harmful, I think. From a, so from a, let's say, let's say from a Jungian analytical perspective, um, Christianity, let's say, uh, and like the Christian God, uh, it's like Jesus and Satan, the traditional Christian beliefs. That is like one way of understanding or one mapping of the collective unconscious. Um, But then if you look at all of these other religions, they might have um, different understandings and different beliefs that kind of, and as a whole, balance out and give you a more well-balanced view of the collective unconscious? Yes. Um, although, as I heard you saying that, uh-huh. I was reminded of, of something that Jung said, mm. that in working with people, especially uh-huh. people who had perhaps become alienated from mm. their uh, religious tradition, uh-huh. he felt that to the extent that the person could reconnect with that tradition uh-huh. and find meaning in it, he felt that that actually facilitated individuation. Okay. So the, it's, it's a paradox yeah. because while each mythology yeah. and the way I'm using that term, my religion or your religion yeah. is a privileged mythology for uh-huh. us. Uh-huh. Okay. I privilege that over another one. Uh-huh. But all, all mythologies are attempting to do the same thing. Mm. And if you go deeply into any one, mm-hmm like very deeply into Christianity uh-huh. or Islam or Buddhism or Taoism or Judaism or just pick it, right? Yeah. You will be able to connect with the collective unconscious in a dynamic way mm. and put yourself in the proper relationship to it. Mm. 
you know, because yeah. the, the ego has got to be relativized to yeah. the unconscious, not ablated, not done away with, but relativized. I can yeah. set my goals for my life, but if the unconscious is pulling me in a particular direction, I'm going to go there. Hmm. And so okay. there's a, a, a humility, humility. I use that word. Then uh -huh. it smacks a little bit because of the tradition I grew up in. It's got all kinds of uh, trappings that uh. it ought not. But it's that idea that I am a necessary player in what I'll call the Ken project. Uh -huh. But I, I am not the author of that project and I'm not in charge. Mm. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, Jung's fascination with mandalas and if those are still used and how that might be used in therapy, if it is. Yeah, I got, I got your, that question when you, uh -huh. when you emailed me and the question of using them uh -huh. is interesting because what Jung said was that uh, at a time, especially when a person is undergoing extreme deintegrative experiences, difficulties, mm -hmm. um, even verging on what one might call a psychotic uh, experience, mm -hmm. mandalas can be spontaneously produced by the psyche mm -hmm. in dreams, for example, or even in doodles, things uh -huh. like that. And Jung saw this as the unconscious's attempt to bring some kind of coherence to what otherwise would seem to be chaos because the essence of a mandala which is a circular diagram primarily uh -huh. uh, doesn't have to be a circle there are square mandalas the key is that a mandala image has multiple axes of symmetry mm. so if you take a circle there's an infinite number of axes of symmetry right uh -huh. for the circle no matter how i turn it it's always going to be a circle a square has one, two, three, four, maybe eight axes of symmetry. So more than one, because it could be square, 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 or diamond, 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 diamond. Hmm. Um, the, the mandala emerges spontaneously in an attempt by the psyche, by the deep parts of the psyche, to organize the chaotic experience the ego is having. Hmm. Because as a circle, anything with the multiple axes of symmetry has a, a center point. Uh -huh. And once you have a center point, everything becomes organized with respect to that center point. Mm. And that's what the mandala does. Uh -huh. It brings these energies, however disparate, however chaotic, uh -huh. to some sort of connection with a center point. And that's what's important. Now, mandalas can be used therapeutically uh, so that we can ask people to draw mandalas, uh -huh. allow themselves to just go into a dream, for example, and then as a form of active imagination, let's put a circular sort of image on a piece of paper mm. and just take colored pencils, crayons, whatever you want to use, and draw in that circle whatever wants to be there. Mm. And in doing this, we can kind of evoke the same thing that would happen by a spontaneously produced uh, mandala. Mm. So that's a way that mandalas can be used therapeutically. Okay. And in certain traditions like Hindu tradition, uh -huh. uh, there were certain mandalas that would be prescribed for people to meditate in front of, to contemplate. Oh. 
because through their system, which I by no means am an expert on, but um, you know that the chakra system, there were mon there were mandalic images associated with each. Oh, I did not know that. Uh, chakra. There was uh. there were images that were associated. Chakra. The word chakra means wheel. Uh -huh. uh, so, for example, if a person was stuck in a power center, mm -hmm. there might be a particular mandala that they could focus on uh, that corresponded to the solar plexus, uh -huh. the third chakra in the, in the chakra system. Interesting. You you mentioned active imagination. Yeah. Um, can you explain that to me for a second? Sure. So <laughs> active imagination involves it involves bringing up generally an image from a dream. Okay. And through a process of relaxing the body and focusing the mind, nothing strange, but just mm. sort of relaxing, bringing it into your mind's eye, you begin to interact with the dream image. Uh -huh. uh, one of the one of the ways that Jung referred to active imagination was a way of dreaming the dream onward. Okay. So if you dreamed of a house and there was an old man whom you didn't know from waking life working uh -huh. at a table, uh -huh. you might do an active imagination where you revisit that house and go up to the old man and ask, you know, introduce yourself just like you would in your ordinary day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, you probably are, with Jung's Red Book. I've never read it, but I've heard about it. Okay. And then more recently, his black books, were, which were his notebooks from mm. uh, the latter part of the uh, 1916, 17, 18. I think it was started in 1913. Um, and it went on for quite a few years. Both the red book and the black books are examples of Jung's own active imagination. Oh, okay. And, and the red book... And to a certain extent, the black book grew out of his struggles with his unconscious process that mm. really became active and very, very disturbing following mm. his break with Freud. Mm. So these were attempts to provide some order or some grounding mm. in the midst of the chaos that was thrown up mm. uh, when that relationship with Freud ended so oh. abruptly. Um, boy, I guess, uh, one last question. Sure. Um, yeah, a, a book on, so Jung talked so much about symbols. Um, he referenced a book that he had that was, he referenced this, uh, this, this patient that came to him with a disturbing image from one of his dreams. And then he pulled out this book from his shelf that was written in like the 1800s and showed him the symbol and it was cathartic for his patient, you know? And I wish he would have named the book, but do you have a, <laughs> do you have a, a maybe a, a go-to book on symbols that you would recommend? So I do, um, I do, and I'll tell you what that is. It's a, a book called Dictionary of Folklore, Mythology, and Symbol. Okay. And it was compiled by a woman named Gertrude Jobes, J-O-B-E-S. Okay. It's three volumes. And it covers uh, mythology and images from all over the world. And the, oh. the most valuable part of the three volumes is volume three, mm. which is an index of myths, an index of mythical situations. Oh. So, you know, if you have like entrapment, then uh -huh. you can go to the index and it will list all of the myths that give images of entrapment, for example, wow. or images of revenge or images of orphans or images mm. of abandonment. Um, 
So that is a very valuable one. But I hesitate to say just one uh-huh. because it's really ironic. In the course of my training and just the course of being on the planet as long as I have been, I buy dictionaries of symbols. I would buy them in training a lot. Mm. And I have an embarrassing amount <laughs> of those books on my bookshelves uh-huh. because at the time that I was in training, which was in the 80s and early 90s, um, we didn't have the internet. We mm. didn't have access. Yeah. And so we had to have these resources yeah. in paper form. One of the most exciting things about uh, the internet is all of those resources are now available. Mm through various search engines. Now, the problem, of course, is anybody could put any garbage up there that they want to, Uh and they often do. Uh But if you're grounded in, say, one or two really good dictionaries of symbols, like the Uh Job's book, uh, there's another one by DeVries uh, called Dictionary of Symbols. I mean, they all kind of have the same uh, names. Uh Um, They'll kind of give you the feel for Mm. what is genuine Uh and then i think going to the internet can be a great resource okay because ultimately you know it isn't even a book of symbols i remember one person uh had a dream very kind of it was disturbing to him because in the dream he had a pet tiger Mm. and he was leaving the pet tiger to go toward a lion and this dream filled him with a great deal of sadness. Mm. And I, I mean, there's so many myths about tigers and lions. I mean, I'm like, well, Durga is a Hindu goddess that rides on a tiger. Let's look at that. That wasn't doing it. That wasn't doing it. Mm. So finally, I said, you know, why don't you just look up the natural history of tigers and lions? Mm. Meaning, what, what are tigers like in the wild? What are lions like in the wild? And he came back the following week. And he said, I think I got something. They're both um, what they call apex predators. Uh But tigers, except when they mate, are solitary. Mm. Lions live in groups. Mm. And something that this man was trying to struggle with was, can he maintain his power and be part of a group. He wanted to become, he wanted to have a family, Uh but he was struggling with it. And Uh we couldn't figure out why, because he was in a decent relationship, didn't know why he was balking. Well, the dream kind of presented him with uh, the image of having to give away his solitary connection Mm. to power in order to enter into a connection to that power that was more collective, more communal. And that wasn't in a dictionary of symbols. That was in an encyclopedia of, (laughs) you know, the natural history of lions and tigers. So you never know where the meaning is going to come from. Man, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't privilege any particular resource either. Uh Uh-huh. You know. Uh Uh-huh. That's why I hesitate to, and then, of course, I told you a book I like, but, you know, I would hesitate to make it be definitive. Yeah, like don't yeah, don't just go to this one resource and rely on that. No, yeah. Right, right. Because again, that's the ego trying to dominate the process. I've got this book. <laughs> this will tell us exactly what this means. No, you don't have a book. And even if you did, it's not gonna tell you everything. 
uh-huh. that that means. Uh-huh. Dr. James, thank you so much. You've explained well, a lot of very you. complicated and complex uh, things in such a beautiful way. And um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for taking your time. Oh, I've enjoyed it too. Thank you very much for asking me.